Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. On December 2nd, 2020, the University of Vermont announced that it would be eliminating the geology, religion, and classics departments, and also eliminating majors in Asian studies, German, and Italian, as part of cuts to programs in the College of Arts and Sciences, two programs with less than 25 or few, 25 or fewer students, or fewer than five graduates per year. The academic social internet, or at least its humanities sector, predictably exploded along lines which are also familiar to those who follow such things. There is anger at neoliberal corporations, American intellectualism, and so on. Those who are able to muster a defense against UVM's actions did so by proclaiming that the arts and humanities foster necessary critical thinking skills, or that these were essential parts of general education at the University of Vermont, and that the liberal arts should not be devalued, or all three of these things at once. Incredibly enough, Many of these points repeat those made for over 100 years, as Eric Adler explains in his illuminating new book, The Battle for the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. While the book centers upon intellectual debates in the late 19th and early 20th century America, it ranges as far back as Marcus Tully Cicero, and is as contemporary as the news from Burlington, Vermont, of, as of December 2nd, 2020. Dr. Eric Adler is Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Maryland. His scholarly interests include Roman historiography, Latin prose, the history of classical scholarship, and the history of the humanities, and this is his third book. Eric Adler, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So um, I want to begin actually sort of at the middle of the book um, with a speech by Charles Francis Adams Jr., who, as I said, I think on Twitter has become uh, a person that I have conceived a great deal of dislike for over the last year <laughs> after reading several books. Um, I, I would postulate that while some people have the macabre idea of taking a time machine back to assassinate baby Hitler, I would like to take a time machine back and spank five-year-old Charles Francis Adams Jr. I don't know <laughs> if it would be good for his character development, but it would make me feel better. Um, so it turns out that after not only having become a racist while in the process of commanding a black cavalry regiment, um, not only having uh, taken against his father and a grandfather, Charles Francis Adams Sr. and John Quincy Adams, uh, with a real unusual fervor, um, after sort of gaining himself a sinecure with a railroad corporation by publishing an article about railroads in the Atlantic, only an Adams could get a job like that. Um, he then takes against Harvard and classical studies. So could you explain what led up to his speech, the college fetish? Yeah. So um, Charles Francis Adams Jr., as you suggest, was uh, a member of the famous Adams clan. Uh, his father, uh, Charles Francis Adams Sr., was a congressman for some time for Massachusetts. He was also offered the Harvard presidency, which he declined. And his uh, uh, grandfather was John Quincy Adams, and his great-grandfather uh, was John Adams. So he comes from this very blue-bloody kind of family. He had, however, a great difficulty in his youth with Greek. 
and with Latin. <laughs> he was not good at the subjects. And he was embarrassed when he was compelled by his father to be withdrawn from the Boston Latin School because he was just so miserable at Greek. And so once he became, as an adult, a member of the Harvard Board of Overseers, he decided in 1883 to give a speech in June of 1883 at Harvard as part of the uh, commencement ceremonies. And he called this speech a college fetich. Uh, he spelled it sort of archaically. Uh, and he argued that Harvard should no longer require Greek on its examination for admissions, which it had offered since, it, it in fact required since uh, the very founding of Harvard in 1636. He thundered that this was a positive educational wrong and that it had ruined the lives in some senses of his male family members going all the way back to John Adams, who are Harvard types, um, because they had been sort of destroyed by this absurd fetish. And so he argued that uh, students should be able to take French or German on the admission examinations for Harvard in place of uh, ancient Greek, if they so desired. This now, speech... Just, oh, pardon, yeah, just, yes, just, just a little um, note here. Uh, technically, when he said that his male ancestors had been ruined by classics, this is what social scientists refer to technically as a lie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, yes, the, I think that's right. The, yeah. the correspondence between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson is delightful for many things. And one of them, I remember I showed this to a classes friend of mine at Oxford, and he was delighted that this had to be the last two American presidents to argue over the uh, basically <laughs> Greek verbs. Right. Um, and uh, there is a lot of classics. Now, Adams famously said the only thing he learned from Plato was a cure against, um, I think, farts. But huh. um, but that that was kind of a lie too. <laughs> right. um, he obviously had read a lot more than that, and um, he learned, and he certainly loved Greek. And John yeah. Quincy Adams loved it even more. Yeah. And perhaps if it hadn't been for his mother, um, he would have been happy to be a professor of rhetoric at Harvard for all, his entire life. And he, right, for, by right. all accounts, his, his lectures are really interesting and he's very good at it. Right. Anyway, yes, I, no, I, we could go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I, you're exactly right, though, Al. That's exactly right, which is that he offered a kind of self-serving portrait of his family uh, and the male members of his family, which was clearly aimed chiefly at making himself feel better for what had happened to him in his own youth. <laughs> um, but at the same period of time, people were nervous. So the, the speech sold, it, it came out in pamphlet form, and it, and it, it was a kind of huge event in American uh, discourse where it sold through three printings. Newspapers were constantly talking about it. All the American magazines commented on this, uh, in part because of the argument, but I think also in part because of Adams's family and, and you know, mm -hmm. what this meant that a blue blood was making this kind of argument. And I think a lot of critics of the speech who were supporters of required ancient Greek in secondary school and on the admission examinations were nervous to tell an Adams about what his family was actually like. So he had the kind of benefit of proximity, which made people say, gee, I, you know, I don't think that's right, but I don't know if I want to go in print and tell Charles Francis Adams Jr. that his father actually doesn't think those things. Um, mm. They're kind of nervous to do so. So there was a kind of benefit, pragmatic benefit for him to yeah, argue. There, it's, a, it's a brilliant rhetorical ploy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Now, and, and, and the what's was fascinating. I mean, uh, what I really, I mean, one of the things I was envious of this is here's a classical historian who's recreated a 
this, you, you uncovered this, as you say, three editions of the pamphlet. Uh, this is much discussed. So, and this is a, a, an event in American intellectual history that I felt like I, sh I should know about. I'd never mm -hmm. heard of, um, yeah. especially because it's related to the Adams family. But mm -hmm. it's, um, you recreate it beautifully. And what's, what's fascinating is the, some of the people uh, that are on Adam's side. I mean, who knew that Popular Science Monthly was mm -hmm. such a, a power of the land? But these, right. um, th these are these, 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 the battle lines are fascinating that are drawn after this speech is published. That's exactly right. So Adams himself um, wasn't as full tilt in opposition to the classical humanities as the circles surrounding the Popular Science Monthly, but his speech was used as ammunition for people who really wanted to destroy any kind of language study at all in the universities, who wanted science to take over uh, entirely. And so there were some kind of more moderate elements like Adams, I suppose, and then more um, kind of vociferous opponents of humanistic study entirely. And so it became a kind of interesting crucible of different sides aligning and so forth. And unfortunately, as I attempt to demonstrate in the chapter, those who were opposed to Adams didn't do a very good job of defending obligatory Greek at the time. And, and, and what is deeply fascinating is when I, in fact, I read this chapter, which is sort of the third chapter. I think I read it first. I read it first. <laughs> and, uh, so this is the kind of reason why I'm doing this in order, but, uh, it, it's that it's the sort of the, the, the incident that leads to the, the title of, of, of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, uh, the arguments are all so familiar. We might yeah. even say that, uh, the editor of popular science is a STEM advocate. Mm -hmm. Adams might be a STEAM advocate, as is right. now HEP amongst the humanities <laughs> and arts people to say, oh, no, no, not STEM, but STEAM. Right. Um, and there are, of course, other people who don't want to have anything to do with the S, the T, the E, or the M. Um, mm -hmm. they're, they're just you know, arts, they're AH, AH advocates. Mm -hmm. And these mm -hmm. are all there. But there's also, could, could you just delineate some of the very familiar arguments and then connect, uh, just the, that appear both in this, the, the argument over the college fetish? as well as also in contemporary life? Yeah, well, one thing I try to, to bring out from the arguments themselves surrounding Adams' speech is that um, most of those who were opponents of Adams, those who wanted to retain the core of the classical humanities in uh, secondary school in America for those he heading off to elite colleges and in the colleges themselves, focused chiefly on skills-based arguments for Greek, for required Greek. Uh, the chief one was something called mental discipline. They mm -hmm. argued that with, uh, in accordance with Scottish common sense philosophy, that the mind was a kind of muscle. And just as the body requires exercise, vigorous exercise in order to be healthy, the mind requires vigorous exercise too. And as a result, uh, it seems, according to these uh, people making this argument, Greek needs to be retained as an obligatory part of the admission examinations because Greek supposedly offers the most mental discipline of any of any kind of study one can imagine. The problem with this argument, well, there are a number of problems with that argument, but one of the problems with this argument is that those people making that claim had actually no proof that that was true. Their evidence was essentially hunches, if you will. They didn't have any empirical proof that learning Greek was harder than, say, learning German. 
Um, mm -hmm. Also, these arguments undercut the humanistic tradition because the humanistic tradition, as I attempt to show in other chapters of the book, um, is based on particular content, uh, masterworks that can shape uh, a student's character and style. And by arguing instead that it offers, the Greek offers mental discipline, this kind of nebulous and hard to define skill, now any subject is important provided it's sufficiently mentally taxing. And so there's no more value necessarily to studying ancient Greek than there is to playing chess or filling out a crossword puzzle. These can vigorously exercise the mind as well. So these folks actually, in their uh, ham-fisted attempts to defend required Greek, ended up playing into the hands of their opponents, who were very often social scientists, who could test empirically which studies offered more mental discipline than others. And further, they were anti-humanistic in their defense of the classical humanities because they were arguing in favor of skills, whereas the humanities had been reshaped and revivified in the, in the Renaissance as an antidote to the skills-based thinking of the Renaissance. Now, to, br to bring that up to date, Al, before, before yeah, we move sure. on, this is so much related to our contemporary discussions because as the historian of education, David Potts, has I think correctly noted, the argument from the late 19th and early 20th centuries on the basis of mental discipline for the classical humanities is the same argument on the basis of critical thinking for the modern humanities today. Mm -hmm. So the same failing arguments from the late 19th century against Charles Francis Adams Jr. are being used today to try to, to save humanities departments at the University of Vermont and elsewhere. And that's yep. a disaster. It, it, and it is uncanny with just a sort of a, maybe a, a dash of modern neuropsychology, um, just sort of uh, as a veneer, uh, just some change in terminology, but the arguments are the same. Mm -hmm. exactly and I, right. there's a self critical. I mean, this is a self critical point. The name of this podcast is uh, historical thinking, mm -hmm. and um, you know, some of my uh, friends, even perhaps um, the patron saint of this podcast, Sam Weinberg, are much more interested in the thinking skills than necessarily the content. Mm -hmm. um, I see them as um, I've come to see them as uh, impossible to divorce. Mm -hmm. One has to think about something. Mm -hmm. um, one has to have some content to think about. And this is where I, I think this book is a tremendous corrective to urge us to think about something rather you, one cannot think about thinking or right. Right. Know. Yeah. I mean, to add to that, presumably talk about him in a bit, but Charles uh, W. Eliot, the sort of famous uh, proponent of, modernization and reform in favor of what would be STEM in at Harvard and ultimately in American higher education had suggested um, during his lifetime that the important thing is not what to teach, but how to teach. Yes. And my former uh, a colleague, Robert Proctor, who's written wonderful books on uh, and, and articles on the humanities, suggested that that's like saying the important thing isn't what you eat, it's the utensils you use. Um, <laughs> that's absurd. That's an absurd argument. And yet you see this actually bandied about not only in the 19th century, but today. The same losing arguments are bandied about today that lost in the late 19th century. All right, we'll get uh, we'll get to this, but then there's also there's an argument. Uh, it's it just absolutely appalling to me that one of the arguments that some of the humanists at UVM are using is that we'll lose distribution requirements. 
Um, we'll see those arguments as well. Those are some of the weakest, but they are remarkably persistent as well. Um, that there must be, and, and this gets to another point, is that somehow this is part of the polish for a gentleman or a gentlewoman. Um, mm-hmm. That one must be, you know, one must have a, a proper range of, of capacities. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a, sort of the finishing school argument, I think, as for mm-hmm. the humanities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's obviously deeply undercutting because it's a kind of dilettante argument. It's almost an argument about uh, cultural capital as yeah. opposed to an argument about what these literary masterworks, what these religious masterworks, what these artistic masterworks can mean to human lives. That's what seems to me most essential. But this kind of, well, people need to learn a little bit about some humanistic content. It doesn't really matter what it is. That isn't going to cut the mustard. I think you're exactly right. So let's go back to the beginning, more or less. Um, Where do we get the idea of the liberal arts, the artes liberales? Where do we get the idea of humanitas? Where does it come from? And and what's it for when it's uh, conceived of? Yes, very good. So um, that's a question that I wish a lot of humanists would ask themselves. Unfortunately, I think (laughs) a lot of people just think that because they're humanities professors or they teach at a liberal arts college or what have you, that they sort of automatically are experts. But one thing that I try to show in the second chapter of my book, that the, the, the humanistic tradition is actually variegated and very complex. Um, and I think that this actually makes it exceedingly difficult to provide a kind of silver bullet defense for the humanities, um, because in a sense, the humanistic tradition has meant so many different things at different times, and humanism means different things as well. In the extant literature, uh, the phrase artes liberales, which means liberal arts for us in English translation, is first used by Cicero, uh, the first century BC Roman statesman. Um, he also uses a term called the studia humanitatis, or the studies of humanity, or the studies of civilization. Um, And he is also the first in the extant literature to use that particular term. He actually sees the studia humanitatis and the uh, the liberal arts as the same thing. So the studies of humanity and the liberal arts are the same. So in antiquity, actually, there's no distinction between the humanistic tradition and the liberal arts tradition. They are one in the same thing. And for Cicero, uh, the humanities or the studia humanitatis or the artes liberales offer a kind of lifelong course of study based on all non-vocational education from Greek and Roman learning. And so it was a kind of comprehensive approach to ancient learning that centered more than anything else on literary masterworks, chiefly uh, Homer's Iliad and ultimately Virgil's Aeneid, but that had other elements in it as well. To Cicero, this is because the, 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 the study, the studia humanitatis is so important to the freeborn person, is because humanitas can be instilled, supposedly, by the studia humanitatis or the artes liberales. And what he means, what Cicero means by this is that humanitas means for him something like benevolence or kindness, the quality of being humane. And so according to Cicero, the Roman state needs people who are actually Uh, uh, educated in this particular way, because then they will be benevolent, uh, averse to violence, uh, of a good temperament, and that they can therefore naturally be good leaders in the Roman state. So it's a kind of personal argument about moral self-improvement for Cicero, but it's also an argument on behalf of the state, 
that the state requires decently educated people who have a spirit of humanitas or benevolence as a result of this education that can allow the state to thrive itself. Uh, as leaders or as as citizens? I mean, of course, the, for, for a Roman, that's sort of the same thing, but yeah, I think you would say both, but I do think that it's important, and this has been pointed out by a number of critics of this liberal arts ideal, that he had an elitist conception. So the the idea is the liberal arts are for freeborn people and normally freeborn wealthy people, um, as opposed to the so-called servile arts or something we might call technical or vocational education. That's for lower born types, that they may be more interested in or have to study these things, but someone who's a member of the prospective elite should be attuned to higher ideals. So obviously Cicero's thinking first and foremost about politicians, statesmen. We need statesmen who have a certain character. But I think he also probably believed that this kind of education is useful for citizenry more generally, uh, particularly um, in a republic. Yes. Uh, you've, we've, you've gone to Cicero. Um, aren't the liberal arts, aren't they Greek? Yeah, so that's a common, the answer to that is, I think, complex. So obviously <laughs> the term liberal arts is, is Latin, comes from the Latin. And humanitas is a Latin term as well. But obviously, I think in part because people think of the Greeks as the founders of the Western tradition and so forth, they tend to think of the humanities as Greek. Um, to some degree, even Cicero kind of thinks that, or at least partly thinks that. But it is actually a tradition that goes back to the Romans. Um, now, the Romans were deeply influenced by Greek educational ideals uh, when they came up with, when Cicero came up with this conception of the Studia Humanitatis. So it isn't true that this is a sort of purely Roman invention. He was looking back to Greek learning and Greek understandings of learning when he came up with this conception. But he did relate this conception to uh, the character of the Roman Republic and Roman society and Roman elite culture more generally. And so Humanitas is, I think, somewhat different from Greek paideia. One chief element is that for the Romans, um, studying Greek culture is just as important as studying Roman culture. So studying Greek literary masterworks is just as important as studying Latin literary masterworks. So the emphasis on foreign language study starts with the Romans rather than the Greeks themselves. And it was actually the Renaissance humanists who looked back to Cicero directly in the Studia Humanitatis when they were coming up with their own conception of the proper education uh, that they saw rather than directly to the Greeks. So it really is a Roman tradition with a lot of Greek contributions to the ideal itself. Now, just a few minutes ago, you said that in the Middle Ages, there uh, there was a movement towards vocationalism, uh, mm -hmm. that liberal arts became uh, more directed towards vocationalism uh, rather than, uh, should we say that liberal, the liberal artists liberales became separate, separated from the concept of humanitas. Um, some medieval scholars are going to bristle at that. So please mm -hmm. defend yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to offer a kind of cartoonish vision of medieval um, education. And in some senses, I deal with it in my book so quickly that, you know, it, it's obviously not a major emphasis. But I do think that education scholars have noted that the sh there was a shift in the liberal arts um, from antiquity to the medieval period in which in the medieval period, it seems as if as a result of uh, primarily the scholastic movement, um, that there was less emphasis on the literary portion of the liberal arts and more emphasis on theology, 
uh, on philosophy, um, on linguistic analysis, on pure logic. And, and so and, there was and on law, kind of, I would actually and on law add. too. Yes, that's right. And so um, there are shifts that happen in one in one direction is that I think that the medieval university is more directly vocational for a few discrete professions than was the case in uh, antiquity, and also that there was a greater focus on. Um, philosophical reasoning and theology metaphysics than had been the case uh, in antiquity. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure I buy that the quadrivium is more important than the trivium, but the trivium is, is definitely um, the logic, grammar, rhetoric um, mm -hmm. is definitely uh, instrumental towards um, other ends and uh, it's to, to getting a, you know, at Oxford, it's to getting a law degree and going to work at court or right. for a bishop or something like that. Um, right. if, if you're, if you're a very lucky boy. Um, yeah. so there, there is a, there is a way in which, you know, everything can become vocationalized mm -hmm. and, uh, certainly medieval university is much more, vo uh, vocationally directed than people sometimes realize. So what did the, uh, what was the Renaissance then, uh, rebirthing? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I take your point. I think that's entirely true that it's, it's easy for our views of education, particularly for not people like myself, because uh, I don't, focus on the medieval period specifically. It's easy to take the kind of Renaissance humanist arguments for their own educational program at face value, uh, because they ob obviously offered a kind of polemical impression of what medieval scholasticism was. And so I do think there are obviously differences between scholasticism and Renaissance humanism, but it is certainly true, and I think your point is well taken, that we can overemphasize these differences. Differences. At the same time, I do think that it's important that there is a kind of rebirth of um, interest in the classical world in a particular way in the uh, Renaissance, first in Italy and then elsewhere, and that along with this came the kind of rediscovery of the term studia humanitatis from Cicero, and the idea that there would be an educational program um, associated with the Renaissance humanists that would be uh, a counter to medieval scholasticism, or as it was perceived, and that would champion a kind of return to the ancients, and more specifically, a return to ancient Greek and Latin literary masterpieces. So these, uh, these individual Renaissance humanists saw themselves as kind of rediscovering a connection with the ancients, and they believed that they wanted a kind of education that was opposed to the skills-focused, supposedly, medieval scholasticism, and that was in favor of the kind of character formation that they saw as chiefly important to the education of members of the elite. They did this in a way that actually narrowed the humanistic tradition as it was portrayed by Cicero. So they perceived that their goals for education were Ciceronian, but they actually made a key change um, to the humanities. For Cicero, as we talked about beforehand, the humanities were the same as the liberal arts. They're sort of a comprehensive approach to education. The humanists, the Italian humanists in the Renaissance, narrowed the humanities to focus on Greek and Latin literary masterpieces that were supposed to be studied in the original language in order to perfect the self. Um, so this is the, the goal. So they, they are the ones who split off the humanities partly from the liberal arts. And so the liberal arts are going to signify something broader than the humanities do. So uh, let's go to the American context, this battle of the classics, uh, which is the subject, uh, the title, the, the center point of the of the book is, is a battle that takes place in America. So it's um, 
only reasonable that you're going to discover how and uh, trace how the liberal arts and the humanities enter into America. Uh, you make the very uh, important point that um, for the first century and a half of American higher education, uh, if not more, um, in a weird way, medieval scholasticism and humanism run together are, are sort of the dual parts of mm -hmm. the American college curriculum. Could you could you explain that, please? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's exactly right. And I think I would also add the Protestant Reformation as a major impact on the curriculum of the early American colleges. So, yes, um, the dominant element, I think, of the curricula of the very early American colleges, and really in some ways leading all the way up until the Civil War uh, in the United States, was Renaissance humanism. And so the ideas behind uh, reading and taking in the wisdom of Greek and Latin literary masterpieces from antiquity was the sort of chief element of the curriculum of the early American colleges. And this is why Harvard required in its, uh, for, for its, for hundreds of years, required Latin and Greek of all incoming students is because they were supposed to be able to read these works in their original in order for them to have this impact on their lives. So that's the dominant element. But as you correctly note, the other intellectual influences were present on the early college curriculum. It was not some unadulterated kind of Petrarchan wish for what higher education should look like. And in fact, um, the, the Oxbridge colleges had been deeply influential on the early American colleges, and that those colleges also were a kind of mishmash of medievalism, medieval scholasticism, and Renaissance humanism. So you actually see some influence of metaphysics, on the early college curriculum, on mathematics on the early college curriculum, on disputations, these kinds of philosophical debates that are uh, are, are deeply tied to, to uh, medieval scholasticism. These are also elements of the early college curriculum. And then I would add the Protestant Reformation. Um, the early colleges chiefly got started up because, and the proliferation of them uh, occurred largely because of the desire of different uh, movements within Protestantism, different Protestant sects, um, to have their own colleges. And so there was a highly religious orientation to the colleges as well that had an impact too. And they're being birthed out of what you know what the intellectual historians would call Protestant neo-scholasticism. Mm -hmm. So the, um, the, the that medieval scholasticism is being adumbrated through the Protestant Reformation and sort of in its uh, new way, the way that you find in, say, uh, Turretin in Geneva or Oh, uh, Calovius, uh, Lutheran in Germany, or John Owen, the uh, Puritan Chancellor under Cromwell of uh, the, uh, Oxford, and so on. So these, um, this is sort of how scholasticism makes its way into America. Um, now, as as you point out, there, um, it's there's also I should say there's a vocationalism. Um, these mm -hmm. Harvard is set up to train ministers. Um, partly, that's its part, partly. That's that's yeah. its, that, that's its chief. That's its chief end um, mm -hmm. is to is to is to fill the pulpits of the of the Bay Colony. Um, but yet uh, we've got William and Mary of all places having the first professor of mathematics and natural sciences and natural philosophy in uh, 1710, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. There, there are there are changes. There there yeah. are things that there are there are adaptations. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, uh, um, yeah, go on. I would also add that. At this period of time, um, as was the case starting with the Renaissance, the humanities now signify Greek and Latin learning. 
And so our conception of the humanities is, that, is what I call the modern humanities, is a kind of group of disciplines that include classics, but include philosophy and Korean and French and, and, and English and so forth. This is a kind of late 19th century invention and a change to the tradition that also is really important to recognize. But one thing a lot of Americans don't recognize is that in the early days of America, the humanities signified the classical humanities. It wasn't until the late 19th century that there, that would shift. So one big inflection point here is the College of New Jersey in 1768, when John Witherspoon uh, of Paisley comes over to Princeton, New Jersey, and uh, brings along with him Scottish common sense philosophy, uh, which lands like a thousand pound gorilla in the intellectual life of the, uh, of the new United States. Could you this is important to your story. Uh, you referred to it at several points. So could you explain to me that the sort of the change, how this led to people arguing then for mental discipline? Yeah. So uh, I think you're exactly right, which is that for really well over a century, Scottish common sense philosophy had a major impact on the American colleges, starting in the very late colonial period and moving on all the way into the late 19th century in some senses with these arguments for mental discipline. Um, so obviously, the Scottish common sense philosophy is a product of the Scottish Enlightenment and so forth. But along with this came this idea of faculty psychology. Um, faculty psychology associated with uh, Scottish common sense philosophy, again, is going back to this mental discipline uh, argument. It's, it's that the, about the kind of mind that human beings possess and the idea that the mind has certain faculties, um, the sensibilities, the will, uh, the imagination. Um, memory, and so forth, and that a college education should be chiefly about um, the greatest training for these individual faculties. And so this becomes a very common argument beginning in 1828 with the so-called Yale reports, which was an attempt on the part of the faculty uh, of Yale University and the administration of Yale University to tamp down the arguments against the classical humanities. And so they came up with this notion. Well, they're not the first ones to offer it, but they popularized this notion that Latin and Greek need to be retained, as does mathematics as well, because they offer the best training to the largest number of faculties. And again, as I attempt to argue over the course of the book, this is a skills-based argument that doesn't focus on content at all. Um, that actually ultimately undercuts the humanistic tradition, in part because the humanistic tradition focuses so much attention on content, on masterworks, and what those masterworks can mean for the inner lives of people. That's part of it. And second, because the arguments on, in, in favor of faculty psychology or mental discipline, whatever you want to call them, turn social scientists into the arbiters of education's value because they can test empirically which subjects actually have those particular effects, supposedly, on the mind. And so without recognizing it, Scottish common sense philosophers uh, and, and their epigones who took up these uh, particular arguments were taking up kind of losing arguments for the humanities in the late 19th century. And this is a problem because we're using a version of those same arguments today as our dominant approach to defending the humanities. It's, it's fat, your whole, the section on the 1828 report at Yale is just, it, it, the language is archaic, but if you change things, if you change the critical thinking, then it all becomes clear. Right. 
yeah. Thank you very much. I, I think that's right. Yes, very good. It's so it's uh, it, it it's amazing how uh, it went. It's it sort of like our recent conversation with Jonathan Zimmerman over the amateur hour over the uh, the continuing failure of, of professors to teach or learn know how to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, one begins to believe there is no historical development. Uh, I, that I have to question my entire <laughs> rationale uh, that time is a flat circle and that we're trapped in in this and there's no way out. Um, yeah. The uh, what's interesting is that that Yale report is in response to competition and uh, one of the, the sort of things that I, I've noticed throughout the book is 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 there's competition between colleges leads to lots of changes, good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'll get to Elliot in just a second uh, and his responding to the the, the challenge from Hopkins. Uh, but Yale was um, Yale was responding to Amherst. Amherst mm-hmm. had dropped Latin and Greek, and so they had to defend themselves, and they did so, as you say, very poorly. But this was responding to a, a certain kind of uh, this was responding to competition. And then along uh, there has been a, there was an explosion um, after the revolution of colleges, many of them staffed or and uh, presidented, if that's the word, presided mm-hmm. over by Witherspoon students, about mm-hmm. 25, I guess, in the first 30 years after the, there's about 50 by the Civil War, I think, and that mm-hmm. there have only been eight at during the revolution. So that tells you how, 42 is, is not bad mm-hmm. uh, for growth. Um, and then comes the Morrill Act, the Land Grant Act of, uh, what, 1862? That's right, um, the first Morrill Act is 1862. Yeah, so what, uh, what's, what's that inflection point in this in this story? So this is going to be a different educational model for for U.S. higher education from the one that existed starting in 1636 with the foundation of Harvard as New College um, in Massachusetts. Um, And essentially, this is a kind of revolt against, of a sort, not a completely revolt, but kind of a revolt against the longest tradition of higher education in the United States, which is the liberal arts tradition, um, focused uh, overwhelmingly on, on Renaissance humanism, but also with these scholastic and uh, other elements associated with them. And it was believed by a number of uh, incipient reformers of American higher education that in the course of the 19th century, perhaps colleges could prepare students for more than simply careers in the learned professions of law uh, and ministry. Uh, and medicine, and that maybe we could have studies of more pragmatic subjects like engineering and agriculture and so forth. And this led to uh, the movement in 1862, ultimately the passage of the first Morrill Act, which gave land uh, to various states to set up their own more vocationally oriented uh, colleges and universities um, that were supposed to have the traditional liberal arts subjects as well, but we're now going to have an array of vocationally oriented disciplines like agriculture, like engineering, that we're now, I suppose, to compete with the older tradition itself. The idea mean, uh, being that more than simply the American elite should go to college and that college should potentially train people for more than a kind of three uh, discrete professions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, in uh, in many ways, uh, this is sort of the moral act, sort of the John the Baptist for the German Research University. Mm. Um, it prepares the way for it in interesting ways. And we, we've talked about the, the rise of the Research University, I think, on the podcast before, certainly with Jonathan Zimmerman recently. Mm. But I, I was interested in the, uh, the rather unforeseen ways that the Research University um, – changes the nature of the liberal arts and the humanities. You've alluded to the, the ways, I think, that the, the way that 
people conceived of the humanities by 1899 was very different than the way that they had done it so in 1799. Mm -hmm. And it's directly attributable to the way that the research university um, changed the institution of the college. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that in some ways we look back at early American higher education with a certain kind of um, incredulity. How, how could things be run this way? How could the college be staffed mostly by a president and a few tutors, most of whom yeah. had just recently graduated and so forth? How could they have fully prescribed curricula that, that compelled students to take all the same classes in the same order and so forth? It's almost sort of bizarre um, to us now because things have changed so much. And I think that's another reason why it's hard to defend the humanities today is because we have this vision of higher education that's so informed by professionalization that occurred mm -hmm. in the 19th century in the United States that it's hard to look back at earlier traditions and what they saw as the value of education. To, to say some a couple of things quickly, I think that uh, professionalization, which occurred first in Germany in higher education and then metastasized elsewhere, including to the United States, uh, fundamentally offered a new orientation toward professors and therefore to students. Uh, the humanities or the studia humanitatis for the Renaissance humanists was primarily backward looking. And what I mean by that is the idea is that you're supposed to read the masters from the past, masterworks from the past, and that this wisdom is supposed to shape your life in important ways. Whereas the professionalized research university is chiefly interested in the creation of new knowledge. And so in some senses, it's forward looking and not backward looking. And I would argue that this really shapes uh, so many things about the contemporary American college experience that make it exceedingly difficult for humanism to thrive in American colleges and universities because they naturally cut against the grain of the professionalization itself, but also against the curriculum that was set up um, to kind of mirror what was going on with this professionalization and the kind of scientizing of the universities themselves that tended to see by design in the United States, as I attempt to point out in the book, um, narrow scientific-like knowledge as the chief goal of education. All of that makes it exceedingly difficult for a spirit of humanism actually to uh, flourish in American higher education today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's always ironic when, when people uh, complain about the neoliberal um, overtaking of the uh, university. I always think of the ways in which the university itself is a 19th century Weberian industrial creation. Um, the sort of the departments, the uh, the colleges, mm -hmm. the uh, sort of hierarchical ordering of things, which when you think about it, doesn't have to exist that way at all. Right. Yes, um, you're ex it, you're exactly right, Al. If I may interject here, because I think that's such an important point, and and you're completely right about this. It is really striking to me that there's a whole insightful literature about the neoliberal university and the neoliberal turn in American higher education from from critics who make a number of really sound points about how off kilter higher education is in its devaluing of teaching and its devaluing of adjuncts and and the kind of inhumane ways it treats its staff and so. Forth. And yeah. yet there's no recognition that this was actually created by design in the late 19th century uh, by people who wanted to set up a curriculum that was going to embody a kind of free market 
social Darwinian capitalism that was going to lead to these exact things that have happened. And so <laughs> well, there's a kind let's, of let's, historical myopia associated with that. Yeah, please. I'm sorry. Continue. And this, and this brings us to, um, well, if I was writing, someday I'm going to write a book called The, the Academic, and it'll be heavily based upon the prince. And my Cesare, <laughs> the Cesare Borgia of, of my book, The Academic, will be Charles Eliot. Mm-hmm. Um, just as I think Machiavelli, insofar as he is a Republican, uh, detested Borgia, but admired his facility as a prince. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, as a, as a well, I like to think of myself as a humanist, I have to detest Eliot, but admire his facility as one of the great college presidents, probably the greatest college president in American history in terms of of seizing and directing power to change his institution. So could you describe Eliot and this and the elective, the Spencerian, the social Darwinism of the elective system? Because this is a fascinating bit of the book. Yeah, thanks. So I, I think, first of all, you're right that it's easy to turn uh, Eliot into a kind of hate figure. And obviously, I disagree profoundly with his own vision of education. But he did change Harvard and through changing Harvard, American higher education in a number of ways. And some of them were good, I think. Um, there are also good things about the professionalization of American higher education, too. So I don't think we should simply turn Eliot into a kind of hate figure. Anyway, Charles W. Eliot was a chemist uh, and a longstanding president of Harvard University from 1869 until 1909. So for 40 years, he was the president of Harvard. And he really modernized Harvard, turning it from what was uh, essentially a college, a kind of liberal arts college into the modern university one thinks about uh, today. What's interesting about Eliot is that he was a kind of Spencerian, as you suggest, the chief intellectual influence on Eliot, as far as the curriculum and pedagogy was concerned, was uh, actually Herbert Spencer, the uh, British philosopher uh, and scientist who was himself a social Darwinist. In fact, Spencer comes up with the term um, uh, the, 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 the fittest, the uh, survival of the fittest. This is a Spencerian term. And so uh, we should we should interject here that uh, Richard Hofstadter might have gone too far out on the limb, uh, that this is a little bit like blaming Calvin for what the Calvinists say. Uh, Spencerians might have gone a lot farther than Spencer yeah. uh, did. But let's yeah. but go on. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Let's OK. Just... So uh, point taken. Um, at the same time, um, Spencer in his works on education was radically opposed to the humanities um, and supported a kind of science-based education um, that was animated by certain types of social Darwinian thought and animated also, I think, by certain types of kind of laissez-faire impressions that were important. Um, All of this was deeply important to Eliot, who came up with a curricular system um, well, he wasn't the inventor of it, he, but he was the popularizer of it, the great popularizer of it in America, um, called the elective system, in which students would be able to choose all their own courses. And the idea was that this was supposed to be a kind of curricular embodiment of Darwinism, if you will. Um, this is exactly what um, these particular um, um, uh, re- uh, innovations were supposed to do. And in fact, in 1884, uh, Eliot wrote, in education as elsewhere, it is the fittest that survives. <laughs> and so Eliot's notion was that the discipline should compete for student attention and that those disciplines that failed to win sufficient student attention would die. Uh, they would be cast out of the university and rightly so because they were not fit to survive. 
And so this particular vision of education at, uh, that Eliot uh, put forth at Harvard radically changed the curriculum at Harvard, but then was widely adopted to some degree uh, greater or lesser at other institutions. And it really ended the old prescribed classical curriculum associated with the early American colleges. Hmm. It's in, yeah, it's interesting how we mostly just die rather than compete. But um, uh, 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 people find it a little, still a little bit in, in bad form to actually try to, you know, lure people away from the business school. Um, I never found that a problem. I was always willing to do that. But um, let's get to, into this 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 dispute between Charles Eliot and uh, a guy. I'm embarrassed to say that I had never heard of the Reverend James McCosh, mm-hmm. president of what will shortly be renamed Princeton. Yeah, that's right. Um, so they, yes, they yes, break please. they both both of them are um how shall we say they break stereotypes. Uh Eliot is uh at one of the most fusty and old-fashioned students institutions in America and he responds to pressure and stimulus and changes the place around. And Makash sounds like he is a cranky a fundamentalist preacher from Scotland and he is mm-hmm. except he's also an advocate of Darwin's theories of evolution. Mm-hmm. Go on with that. Yeah, so they're they're sort of very interesting characters. What the chapter of my book that focuses uh, specific attention or the most attention on these two figures uh, focuses on a debate that occurred in 1885, early 1885, between Eliot and Macosh in New York City. There was a debate uh, hosted by this Tony Intellectual Club called the Nineteenth Century Club, and there was going to be a debate between Eliot and Macosh over the college curriculum. And Eliot's argument was that students should choose all their own courses for themselves, and also that they should govern themselves, that there should be no uh, demerits given out or, you know, or anything, no in loco parentis kind of activity on behalf of the uh, college itself to the, to the idea so far as that they shouldn't even take attendance. If students don't want to show up, they don't have to show up, you know, they, as long as they suffer the consequences. On this night in 1885, his opponent was this Scottish common sense philosopher, James McCosh, who, as you suggested, I think correctly, he's sort of seen as a curmudgeon, kind of the the reactionary in the room and his arguments. But actually, he's a much more interesting figure than that. And his views are kind of all over the place in some regards, because he, on the one hand, was very much an evangelical and tied to the Scottish evangelical tradition. But on the other hand, he tried to combine that with the Scottish Enlightenment and even Darwinism as well, because he was interested in natural science. Makash took up a kind of watered-down version of the traditionalist case against Eliot. He argued that at least some of a college's courses should be prescribed. Some could be chosen by the students, but some of them should be prescribed. And he also argued that a complete lack of college discipline was a disaster and that Eliot was sort of fooling himself in uh, suggesting that there should be no college discipline at all. Um, Unfortunately, as I attempt to demonstrate in my chapter, although Makash does make some sound points against Eliot's views, um, the chief one is that Eliot seemed to think that students would naturally choose courses that most suited them. And I think Makash recognized, no, they're just going to choose the easiest classes. That's the ones that they're mostly going to choose. And I think that he kind of demonstrated a greater understanding of human nature than Eliot did, who was kind of too rosy about this. Um, But unfortunately, Makash anchored his his views in favor of obligatory Greek and obligatory classical study, and so for the classical humanities, on the basis, again, of mental discipline, which, as we've already talked about, is a kind of losing argument, and second, on the basis of 
um, theology. He was deeply concerned that there wouldn't be a sufficient number of ministers for the United States, and that if uh, if Greek wasn't continued to be required by the American colleges, then we couldn't have a sufficient number of ministers moving forward, and this would be a disaster for the Christian character of the United States. And as I attempt to argue in the late 19th century, although that argument is going to have some appeal among some people in the United States, the numbers of those, peop uh, of those people are dwindling because society in the, in, the in the late 19th century, it's industrializing, democratizing, secularizing in many ways, because there's a kind of mania for Darwin and so forth that Herbert Spencer's vast popularity demonstrates or helps demonstrate. And so the argument that we're going to need required Greek because we're going to need more ministers is just not going to continue to resonate in America with a sufficiently large population of Americans to be a winning argument for the humanities themselves. So um, here we are with, um, with, with that, that's an exception to the rule that these arguments uh, still are contemporary in many ways. But nevertheless, the, uh, the idea of uh, the critical thinking um, persists and the benefits of critical thinking and the studying humanities persist. Um, and one could feel extremely depressed by this time of the book, and one does. Um, but you decided that you would um, you excavate a a different voice uh, in favor of the humanities and a different approach towards advocating for the humanities, and that was in the person of Irving Babbitt. Could you explain who he was, and then very briefly in the time we have left, uh, what his argument was uh, in favor of the humanities? Yeah, so Irving Babbitt wrote at the tail end of the Battle of the Classics, which I focus on in the book as a kind of way of trying to come up with the best arguments for the humanities today. And when I read him originally, it was really a, a kind of shining light. His arguments were so much better than those of other arguers for the classical humanities and for the humanities in general in the course of the 19th, late 19th and into the 20th century. Uh, Irving Babbitt was a classically trained professor of French and comparative literature at Harvard University, who had also studied uh, Sanskrit and Pali as well. And he was the chief thinker associated with a movement of social and literary criticism called the New Humanism, which was a deeply influential movement in the early 20th century. Um, as the title New Humanism suggests, Babbitt was deeply concerned with a proper approach to education. And one of the important things that Babbitt did in his attempt to argue for the humanities is that he ditched the skills-focused arguments in favor of the classical humanities uh, and offered instead a kind of radical critique of modernists such as Charles W. Eliot, who had built the U.S. research universities and revolutionized higher education in the United States. And Babbitt demonstrated, as I try to show in my book, that the modernists' views on education stemmed from a faulty impression of human nature and therefore was dangerous. Babbitt saw uh, in the humanist tradition a vouching for human existence as dual. Uh, human beings have both higher potentialities and lower potentialities, and a humanist education must compel students to read literary masterpieces because these works provide the most profound insights into the human condition. Thereby, they could improve their character and live up to their higher potentialities. But he argued that modernists, such as Charles W. Eliot, uh, had ditched humanism for what Babbitt called two different forms of naturalism, so-called sentimental naturalism that Babbitt associated with Rousseau, 
and scientific naturalism that Babbitt associated with Francis Bacon. And according to Babbitt, both of these groups of naturalists saw human life as monistic. Uh, to Rousseau, human beings are naturally good, and it's society and its institutions that have corrupted uh, the, the, the naturally good human being. So Rousseau, according to Babbitt, implicitly rejects the humanist impulse to improve the self in favor of supposedly improving the world. So human beings, according to Rousseau, should embrace all of their own impulses. They're naturally good anyway. Scientific naturalists, to go along with this argument, according to Babbitt, also eschew a concern for self-improvement in favor of gaining control over the natural world. So the goal for Bacon and his followers is not control over oneself, it's control over nature, if you will. And Babbitt demonstrated that this naturalistic conception of human existence is wrong. Human beings are not naturally good, and so as a result, humanism is needed. People need to be able to live up to their higher potentialities because they cannot be simply left alone to their own designs and naturally good be, be good people. And we cannot presume that people will naturally use their vocational training in the service of the good for society. And so Babbitt also, another thing he did, a sort of last piece that I think is so important, Babbitt also revolutionized humanism by making it omnicultural. One of the chief arguments against humanism in the contemporary American university is that it's too narrow. It's a curriculum of dead white males, if you will, in the common parlance going back to the culture wars of the 80s and 90s. Babbitt came up with a way of supporting a kind of radically omnicultural humanities based on what he called the platonic problem of the one and the many that focused just as much as com on commonalities between cultures as differences. And he believed that all human beings have, uh, are simultaneously all alike and all different. And similarly, all human traditions are simultaneously all alike and all different. And so the goal in, a, in a, hum a proper humanist curriculum should look at masterworks from many different societies to try to determine whether there's a kind of core of common wisdom between different traditions that suggest for people the best ways to live their lives. And Babbitt himself saw a lot of this commonality in Confucius and Buddha and Christianity and Hinduism and certain elements of Greek philosophy as well. All of this suggested that by examining masterworks from various different cultures, a person could live up to his or her higher potentialities and tamp down one's base potentialities and therefore be able to lead a more serious and happy life and also therefore not to turn into the kind of selfish megalomaniac that one can see in, in America today. There's a it's a very interesting uh, that the uh, Babbitt's idea of the one and the many and the idea of, of humans both alike and different it has something to say even about the way that we um, draw lines around humanistic disciplines. As, as you as you point out at one point, um, you know, history took a while and, and, and some people still put history under the social sciences rather than the humanities. And certainly insofar as it's a social science, uh, history has its premise is that it investigates change over time. Mm -hmm. and that uh, humans are not alike, and mm -hmm. that, in fact, the same humans in the same place are going to be different 50 years later, 30 years later, maybe even 20 years later than the ones that were there um, before. And mm -hmm. yet, at the same time, we know that there are certain commonalities, and history's always had a hard time in dealing with that. Um, certainly, the more uh, social scientific the his historian is, the less, the more uncomfortable he's made by that. 
Um, and uh, it's the sort of the really hardcore humanist historians, of which there are very few, who are always looking for these et the eternal truths of history, uh, which mm -hmm. most historians reject as mm -hmm. a concept. But mm -hmm. Babbitt gives us a sort of double uh, a double vision uh, with which to see that both can be true. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, a great way to put it. And I, so Babbitt's not so foolish as to believe that all human beings are exactly alike. Um, right. There's no differences between them. There's no differences between human traditions at all. I mean, obviously that's absurd. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But it seems to me to be similarly absurd to suggest that there are no commonalities between human beings. That yeah. There's no such a thing as a kind of common humanity at all, which unfortunately I think in contemporary society is becoming implicitly the, the kind of default position that almost everybody has because we're so focused on differences that we don't see commonality. Yes. Yeah. Um, but Babbitt does give us a way through that. Um, well, it's, it's, it makes me want to, to read him. Um, and uh, I, any other comments about Babbitt before we, we, we close up? Well, I do think that there's high time for a kind of revival of his thought. That's one reason why I wrote the book is that I thought that his ideas could be so helpful for us as we grapple with. Not that he came up with a perfect curriculum or his ideas are completely foolproof or anything like that. I don't think that that's true. But I do think that he both reconnects to an earlier tradition of humanism and tries to explain its goals and values in a very useful way. But he also updates the humanistic tradition to make it something that's just more intellectually and more morally appropriate for the present. Um, obviously, going back to a, a strict classical curriculum is never going to work. It's too narrow for today. Similarly, I think going back to a kind of Western civilization-focused curriculum is just going to be too narrow for most Americans. Our society is just too globalized for that. Uh, there's, it's just too pluralistic for that. Babbitt shows a way how you can still anchor a humanistic education in masterworks of culture and make it actually sufficiently broad to be intellectually and morally appropriate for the present. So I'm not attempting to argue in the book that, you know, just follow Babbitt. I mean, you know, his book on education, his chief book on education was written and published in 1908. So obviously there are some things about his thought that are outdated. But I do think he's crucially important for us in looking forward as humanists about how actually the humanistic tradition can survive and why it needs to in order to ensure that people can live decent lives and how society can be led by people who actually have a moral center. Um, I think mm -hmm. he connects with those particular issues very well. And as the um, news from the University of Vermont shows, it's, it's not just uh, the classics department that's being axed. Um, it's the religion department. It's Asian studies. Um, so uh, this uh, this ba the the Babbittry defense no the Babbitt defense is um, oh. it has a particularly a particular purchase in this context I would say in which um, it's not just the Western Civ it's not just the dead white males that are being cut it's mm -hmm. not just the European languages that are being cut it's not just the classical languages being cut it's Asian studies as well. It's, yeah, uh, all sorts of religion that's being cut, one, one presumes. Yeah, and I think he also demonstrates very clearly how the curriculum was established to do something specific, which was to minimize the humanities, and that we should stop our complacency in kind of recognizing that, well, this is the curriculum we've got. That's what that's what a curricula, college curriculum should be like. That is a kind of impoverished vision of education. Everything really extends from the curriculum. The curriculum gives us a sense of what sort of human beings we ultimately want to 
shape. And that curriculum that we have now in American higher education at almost all institutions across the United States is a kind of Darwinian neoliberal curriculum. Is that really the best way to educate Americans? Babbitt shows how that's actually not the case, and it's based on a faulty impression of what human nature is like that is actually dangerous for the future health of civilization. Um, just could you, do you have a copy of your book present uh, in front I do. of you? Yeah. Um, could you turn to the last uh, paragraph? Well, I just uh, I, I have to say that um, I'd like you to, to to read us out with that and perhaps even uh, give us a I don't think anything further comment will be required. But I, I would say listeners might be thinking that there's some sort of editorial vision. Um, they've heard uh, by the time this uh, podcast comes out, they've heard Zena Hitz, Scott Newstock, uh, Jonathan Zimmerman and now uh, Eric Adler. Uh, talking about matters which are very much related to one another. And uh, I have to say that somewhat embarrassedly uh, that there is no great editorial vision at work. This is the luck of the publication schedule. Uh, but uh, you can't, uh, but reading them all in, uh, in listening to all these conversations in a row and reading all these books in a row is a very uh, nurturing experience actually in a very, in a moment of, uh, of deep confusion about the future of the humanities. But, uh, before we get to that final paragraph, um, you've been uh, describing this this training for wisdom and character, mm -hmm. and um, that's kind of scary to a lot of us. Hmm. Um, uh, I think, uh, for one thing, I'm I'm worried about my own wisdom and character. I'm not sure I want to be responsible for the wisdom and character of the 19 year olds in front of me. Hmm. Um, what? How do you respond to that? I mean, how how could it how how can it be better? I mean, I I can see a response to the say University of Vermont administrators and look, you're you're cutting the in, the 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 parts of this program and this university that are supposed to are are training students for wisdom and character. Um, that would be different. It would be a very different. Uh, it would be a very different defense of the humanities at UVM or anywhere. But what would it mean? Yeah. So first of all, I think I should probably clarify what I mean by that. That's a, a phrase that actually comes from Babbitt himself. And Babbitt was really good on this particular issue. He demonstrated very clearly, and it was very easy to demonstrate because Charles Eliot wrote a lot of stuff and gave a lot of speeches on higher education. And he made these points very clear. Um, to Eliot and to our universities that are kind of shaped in some senses after his likeness, um, education's goals should be service and power. Eliot said this all the time. The goal of education should be service and power. And Eliot, even on his 90th birthday, gave a speech in which he said that students should look forward, not backward. They should look outward, not in. And so he genuinely believed in this kind of scientific project for service and power. Um, Babbitt himself argued instead that a humanist goal is uh, wisdom, and character. And what he meant by that isn't a kind of force feeding on students exactly how they're supposed to act, right? He wanted the students to be active in their own search for values, active in their own moral center. And this could mean, therefore, the repudiation or at least the modification of uh, visions from the past about how you should live your life. But he believed that literary masterworks are masterworks because they offer the most profound insight into the human condition. And that by studying these works, students can try to work out for themselves how they ought to live their life. And they should be able to answer for themselves, right? Ultimately, um, 
what is justice? What does it mean to live a good life? What sort of values should you have? What goals should you have? What does it mean to be a good person? These are the sorts of things that students should figure out. And they can do it most easily through the study of literary masterworks from a variety of cultures. So his goal was not to kind of force feed, this is what it means to be wise, but rather that students should be actively involved in a search for standards for their own life. Because, Babbitt argued, that if you merely train students vocationally for service and for power, how do you know they're going to use that service? How do you know they're going to use that power in the service of society rather than in regard to their own will to power? And he argued that if we don't train people for character, right, that we're ultimately going to have a disaster on our hands for civilization because human beings are not naturally good, unfortunately, and they need to be taught and to think about how to tamp down their base inclinations and live up to their higher potentialities. That's what he thought a humanistic education was for. And it wasn't just important for humanities majors to get this. It was important for all people going to college to get this. Because if not, they lack a moral center. Could you read that final paragraph? And Sure, sure. I've never been asked to do this, actually, I have to say. I've never been asked uh, <laughs> it's good. To, to read my own things. But all right, very good. Um, so from the, uh, quoting, here's the last paragraph of the book. Is there a central core of human wisdom across the ages from manifold traditions that can guide us as we grapple with the best ways to live? We can find out only by experiencing masterworks of art, literature, religion, and philosophy from a broad range of cultures. This is not an exercise in intellectual tokenism, nor does it presume a single way of living that is best. Rather, it provides the soundest means by which to investigate life's meaning. The future health of human civilization relies upon the rejuvenation of the humanistic tradition. We cannot improve the world if we cannot improve ourselves. My guest today has been Eric Adler. He's the author of The Battle for the Cla of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. Eric, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.